Welcome to Authority Issues, a podcast about leadership management and artisanal soap molding, <laughs> apparently. Uh, I'm Rachel Perkins, aka Pi or Pi Bob. I'm into words, operations, cheese and whiskey, and of course, leadership. And I'm Kendall Miller, and I'm a fan of mountain runs, sorting through complex people issues and worrying about all the leadership things I'm inevitably doing wrong. And today on the show, we have Anne Carrier, Senior Product Designer at Engage, a payroll and recruitment startup based in the UK. Hi, Anne. Hi. How are y'all doing today? I'm doing well. Tell us a little uh, about your path to leadership and uh, how you got to where you are now. I guess I have come at it a kind of fairly random path. Um, I started work when I was 15, um, working as a receptionist for an estate agent, um, like real estate agent um, in the south side of Glasgow, um, near where I grew up. And when a kind of fairly random route through temping in office roles for a while and then um, teaching myself HTML um, and CSS um, while answering the phone at the software company that I worked with. Oh, so you're a masochist then. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, was, it was a pretty fun place. Um, it was right next door to the, the register office of Glasgow um, where people could get married in civil ceremonies, um, which meant that... Um, Occasionally during the week, but mostly on Friday, there would be bagpipes outside the door of the office, <laughs> um, which was a joy. <laughs> Lovely. Um, I don't think any of our other guests will have that in their path to leadership story. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, it, was, it was pretty interesting. They did real-time software for things like nuclear power stations and airports and all sorts of, of things like that. So I kind of got a, an insight into... Um, how software works at the kind of safety critical end of things. Mm-hmm. Um, when I left there, I had managed to finally claw my way into a job as a web designer um, because that's what I thought I wanted to be and did that for a bit. And then the company went out of business, at which point I moved to London and the aftermath of 9-11, mm-hmm. um, thinking that I would join one of these you know, web design agencies that I'd heard about in London Um, during the kind of dot-com boom except the dot-com didn't really boom in the aftermath of (laughs) 9-11 so um, because sometimes you just got to work I um, ended up as the sort of personal assistant to the the head of personnel at a UK charity for blind and partially sighted people and kind of worked my way through that and I landed there at a time when they were moving all of their documents, their paper documents to electronic documents, which is where I got my start in digital accessibility. And then having moved on from being um, his secretary, basically, I moved into the web accessibility consultancy um, and sort of managed the, the workload for the consultants there before becoming a consultant myself for a while. Um, so I would do audits and for um, web content accessibility guidelines, accessibility, and I would go and do training and workshops and, and things to help people make um, their websites more accessible to everyone, not just blind and partially sighted people. Mm-hmm. Um, and after a few years of doing that, I got to the point where I was becoming really frustrated because I wanted to be solving the problems, not kind of coming in when the problems had been solved and telling people that they hadn't quite solved it the way that they should. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> because we were all about accessibility, we weren't 
kind of encompassing all the usability challenges, I would find myself in the kind of situation where I would be saying to to someone, well, you know, technically, you know, the accessible thing to make this accessible is this, but really for, you know, usability purposes, you probably want to do this because helping someone make a really terrible information architecture or experience accessible to people with disabilities as well didn't feel like a win it's like yay now you get to have the same terrible experience as all of us (laughs) 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 you know like it's like well no (laughs) that doesn't feel like a win that feels too too limiting if all I can do is focus on the things that are accessibility issues and or things that I can shove into a bucket that says this is an accessibility issue that's not really a win and I wanted to be out there solving problems so I went freelance and then after a while doing that I ended up working in investment banking. Um, This is a wild ride. (laughs) That's a pretty big shift there. (laughs) Which is a bit of a shift and, and I think surprised a few people but what was interesting about that was that when I stepped into that environment and I looked at the environment that traders and um, other people in trading floors were in. There was a lot of analogous needs to disabilities. So they're in a very noisy environment. They have, you know, anywhere between two and six screens. They have a lot of distraction going on. Um, Most of them have a phone under their, their chin because for some reason none of them use headsets ever. Which baffled me, and they have, you know, they they have certain um, expert behaviours, like you know people with disabilities do, or everybody does. But actually, when you looked at the pure needs, some of the expertise that I gained in accessibility was actually really valid for these people who would never in a million years consider themselves to be disabled in any way. So it was it was a really interesting place to work. For a while also, because the people I met there were nothing like me. I was absolutely not the user. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the time, which was kind of late 2009 when I got into it, bankers were not anybody's favourite people at that point. You (laughs) can say that in past tense. That's, yeah. (laughs) I, I think things are, I think there's still a bit of, oh, I don't know, I don't even know how to put it. Like, it's not anybody's kind of favorite role i guess when you think about you know like like in a big bad or these are people that, that go and make money off the back of of sure. um you know people who can't afford to lose it but actually none of the people i met in that thing were kind of big bads they were people who were were doing a job who were trying to do things for the right reason and they were working in an environment where you know, there had been a, a massive shift in how the world thought of them and things were, were moving quite quite quickly and more legislation was coming in and so they're still trying to just do their job and, and make money for their family, but without trying to take down the global economy <laughs> at, the, at the same time. Um, so that was that was a really interesting... Bankers with likable morals. It's it, Is this bank available to people from uh, the United States? <laughs> where, where do I... Like, like there were there were some things that I overheard on trading floors that you know weren't brilliant and probably leaned more towards the kind of billion style you know conversations that that you would expect. There was you know people talking about you know the challenges of keeping their mistress away from their wife and um, okay. things like that. There's a, there's a leadership issue. <laughs> <laughs> so, are you still working at this? Working with these bankers? 
No, I, I, I moved away from there after about four and a half years um, because the culture just wasn't brilliant and the the consultancy that I worked with it had had changed it had got more like banking culture and the banking culture as a whole had seemed to kind of revert to kind of pre-2008 kind of of cultural norms and that just wasn't wasn't cool after becoming a parent um Hmm. and so I moved on um to a healthcare startup and then um I moved on to a product being a product team for hire and we went into a major UK retailer and from there I've moved to my current company um which is a payroll and recruitment startup um where what we're trying to do is make that process of kind of finding hiring managing temporary or contingent workers better mm-hmm. from the point of, of finding and hiring them right the way through to to paying them you know correctly on time without any hassle um so that's a, a pretty fun challenge is the company specific to the uk or is it all over europe or worldwide like wh- where are you offering this uh, because those laws have to vary dramatically across different places yeah, they, they do. I mean, it's, it's aimed at the, the UK market for the moment. And the people who who work in the company, we're, we're in the UK and Europe. Um, the product and design part of the, the product organisation are in the UK, um, mostly London-based. Um, the engineering team is distributed across the UK and Europe, which is really interesting. Okay. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting challenge. You have Tade, as I said earlier, you're, it's quite a wild ride. You've gone all over the place. You've had all sorts of different kinds of experience. And, and now you're, um, you're a product designer, but I understand that you are having some, some constraint around you know, who is, who's leading who. And so what's the leadership issue you're dealing with or thinking about right now? I guess at, at the moment, I'm kind of the, the UX lead for the payroll um, part of the product. Mm-hmm. Um, there's only three de- three designers in the organisation at the moment, and we have a lot of different streams of work going on. And so, at the moment, um, kind of my biggest challenge is how to kind of lead that work and not necessarily do all of it myself because there's only one of me, and to focus on the things that I can really do well and that I absolutely need to do because other people can't do them rather than jumping on any grenades that that come up because that doesn't let you know engineers level up into to other things or you know other people step into to different parts of the role if I try and 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 golem all of the design work that's not really (laughs) allowing design to scale that's the goal. So is the struggle to delegate and delegate well, or is the struggle letting actually letting go? Or what's what's the thing that's kind of top of mind for you? Is it trying to figure out the right people to solve the right problems? Or is it just figuring out how to accomplish more work than Anne can on her own? I think it's, it, it's a mixture. It's mostly the latter because there's a limit to how many hours in the day that, that I have does, you know, my, my boss and, and my other designer colleague, um, you know, everyone else in the organisation. But um, we have um, a fairly strong look and feel in the product. Um, we have incredible um, engineers we have, you know, access to subject matter experts. Um, we have clear patterns and ways that we do things. I don't need to make a decision on absolutely every single aspect of design. Um, and so by allowing 
people to be part of the problem discovery as well as the the solution discovery um, it allows more people to be involved in it and it means that if somebody wants me to to have a look at something that they've done if they've had a go at solving it and going well you know our usual pattern is this and this is slightly different but this is what we think would work and then get me to cast my eye over it that allows me to not have to context switch quite so much which means that I can get involved in the bigger meatier parts that you know I need to focus on for longer periods of time Mm -hmm. and that means that I can get more done and we can ship more value to our internal customers as well as external customers. And I liked what you said uh, a little bit ago about this also allows other people who haven't the kind of experience that you have like you could if you had unlimited time probably do most of or all of these things yourself and sometimes I'm, I'm a control freak so personally it's very difficult for me to hand off a thing and say well someone else who's not quite as awesome at it as me should do this but it's really great the way that you you uh, talked about how this allows other people to level up their skills um, and so picking out those kinds of pieces of work to do and hand off and 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 providing the support infrastructure for that as well. Like, well, what happens if they fail? Have you had that kind of thing happen? And and how do you address that? It's not like massive clunking fails because we try and work on delivering small pieces of work quickly. Mm-hmm. But if something went out and it wasn't brilliant, then we would like have a talk about it and ship a patch as quickly as we could. Mm-hmm. So there's not a massive amount of, of jeopardy. So I, I feel like it's it's reasonably safe for people to get involved in. And, and I'm involved in the QAing of features and so is everyone else. Um, and, you know, things get demoed once a week. So there's, there's lots of opportunity for people to see what's going on across the organisation and to see, you know, what's about to be shipped or for me to, to stick my word in. But, you know, the kind of level of adjusting is mostly copy to be honest, um, of the, the features that we've been working with that. It's like, oh, well, maybe I'd adjust the work thing. And that's only because in some cases, English isn't um, everybody's first language. Mm-hmm. And so there's just little tweaks, but it's like, it's not like me coming in and rewriting everything. It's just very, very slight tweaks. And I think that's essential when you're essentially kind of a design team of one or you don't have a massive size team is that you can't, design all the things yourself and the way to scale design really sensibly and and the best way to do it is to enable a culture of design of good design so that people know what good design looks like Mm -hmm. um, so that they understand your thought processes and the decisions that you make so I find myself externalizing a lot of the sort of thought processes as I'm working through a design and as I'm talking through it with the team um, or as we're looking at solutions to a problem, I say, well, you know, the reason I'm suggesting this control is because of this and this copy here because of this and and that sort of thing. And it's something that I did in my my previous role as well. I was a, a kind of UX team of one amongst a, a team of kind of anywhere between four to, to eight developers. And one of my favourite moments of working with that team was being out at um, one of the the company stores and testing a prototype with um, the staff there and the engineers back in in the office working on the next version 
of of that app um, and coming back into the office and they'd been working all day and going well you know we needed to move on with this and and you were in in store working on that thing so here's what we did and showing it and like there was nothing that I would change on it oh, that's fantastic feeling isn't it? you know <laughs> yeah that's great. good job that means you did a good job and I, I'm curious, I'm curious, Anne, as a person who, I have zero design sense. Like, I, I genuinely cannot tell if one thing even looks better than another in, in most situations. I mean, there's, there's times where it's very obvious, but I've had several people in my career, uh, one of them is my wife, constantly saying, you know, hey, you know, why can't you choose the thing that looks better? Or what, you know, I just, I seem to lack the ability to get it. And I, I'll blame the fact that I'm also quite colorblind, at least partially involved in that. But I, I'm curious, you know, creating a culture that understands good design. Do you run into people like me who just simply don't get it? And is there some kind of advice that you give? Or do they eventually catch on to at least some of the patterns, whether they understand it or not? Or how does that work? I think um, there are there are always people who will have a kind of greater or lesser awareness coming in. Um, there may be things that they just haven't ever thought about. And so that's what kind of gives them that sense of like they don't necessarily know what good design is in this the small scale. I mean, you know, people can look at an app and go, well, that's pretty or that looks a bit rough, but they don't normally think about the the. The, the finer details but you know in in the previous team we had a couple of people who weren't necessarily particularly front-end focused but even there after a while of just being around the kind of conversations about design and seeing conversations happening in slack about you know we're going to do this because of this or can you move that bit there because of this reason they would start to to internalize that and start to kind of get it a little bit and to some degree there's a kind of coaching relationship there so if I was working with somebody who was perhaps less design focused then I'd maybe take more of a coaching role and and verbalize more about things than if somebody who I knew had really got it and it would just be like oh can you put that there and put that there and you know do what you think is best and show me and I'll check it out. And obviously there's there's more than just the the visual aesthetic mm-hmm. of uh, design here. You're talking about UX as well. And um, I'm pretty sure Kendall, you know, could figure out whether something needed to be closer to something else for accessibility reasons or text being, you know, a certain way underneath something so that you get assistive text when you need it. Or it's, it's not just about like, what color pants should I wear, Kendall? <laughs> <laughs> you think you're simplifying it to a level that I'll understand. <laughs> I do. I do. I'm trying. I'm trying my best. You spend a lot of time coaching people and it sounds like you spend a lot of time coaching people one-on-one. Are you an introvert or an extrovert? And how does that affect your work? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, it's, I'm kind of in the middle, I guess. Um, there are times when I have peopled too much and I need to sit in a quiet place by myself. Um, mm-hmm. and the amount of quiet time I need varies. Um, I have occasionally just kind of run away from my life for a couple of days with you know my family's you know blessing um but just because I have been so completely worn out by everything that I just need to go and recharge somewhere um but similarly if I'm on my own and not working with people and not speaking to people for too long that also makes me um a little cranky when I went freelance between working for the the charity and working in the bank um I spent a lot of time working from home 
um, and it was not good for me full time as a thing. And so I kind of need to balance the two things. So, you know, sometimes I need to have the quiet focus. Other times I need to be in an office. And so the situation I have just now is that for the people who are London-based, the company has an expectation that those of us who are London-based will spend uh, about 50% of our time actually in the office. And the rest of the time, either work from home or be where they need to be. So if you need to be in the office for something, for a face-to-face meeting, then the expectation is that you'll do that. And so that gives me the flexibility to kind of manage those those times and, and those periods where I just need to not be listening to people around me while I'm trying to work and also kind of manage things like my commute and my family commitments and, and that sort of thing. So it works out quite nicely. Sounds like a nice balance. Um, what is your relationship with authority in this particular job and in general? Do you do you have some authority over others or are you uh, considered more of a consultant? Um, and if you do have authority, what, what do you how do you feel about that? I think I possibly have influence rather than authority at the moment. I'm not directly line managing anyone at this stage. But I do kind of have a bit of a responsibility to ensure that, you know, the team of people that I'm working with are okay same as any other team member really and so I kind of look out for the people that I'm working with day to day I look out for my um, colleagues on the design team on the um, the product team and also um, we have a client services team who are kind of our primary and sort of internal customer and so I guess I have a responsibility to them to make sure that what we're delivering actually meets their needs and to try and get the the information from them that helps me do that so it's like I don't really I, I there's nobody who I instruct to do things but it's more about finding a way to work with all of these different stakeholders um kind of across thing and also the people above yeah and how do you how do you do that do you have a lot of one-on-ones do you meet with people a great deal how do you find out how people are doing I have a, a few one-to-ones that that go on regularly I for the first time I think in my career I have um skip level upwards one-on-ones which is which is interesting a lot of the time I just kind of ask how people are doing it sounds it sounds like really simple and basic but I think that all too often if somebody's working with a team that's not theirs there can be a kind of client customer kind of weird relationship and and forgetting that stakeholders are humans too mm-hmm. <laughs> I've seen that a lot in other places where it's like you know we are this team and everybody else is other mm-hmm. and I try not to to get involved in in that sort of thing I just kind of look at it as well like we're all one we're all one company um, and cross the boundaries and, and cross the boundaries I mean the company has started doing kind of random one-to-ones as the, as the company's grown a lot in the last year there's been a, a whole pile of new engineers joined and as they are mostly distributed I think there's only a couple of engineers who actually work in the London office um, for any amount of time. And so to allow us to get to know people, we've been doing these, we've been using this like Donut AI, I think, um, this little Slack bot thing that matches you up with someone that you don't talk to very often. Huh. And so we do these donut chats 
um, which is really cool. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, I've, heard, um, I've heard of Donut. Does it does it work well for you? I, there was a public Slack that I was in where you know they added the Slack the the bot and then nobody ever showed up. But I guess in a in a company setting, it might be different. It's small and fixed. Uh, yeah, is it that works well. It it's worked really well. I mean, sometimes I like get super busy, and at the moment, I'm kind of heads down in in a product project that I'm working on, um, and so I owe. Um, the person I was matched up with last fortnight uh, chat um, because I just got so focused on what I was doing I didn't have a chat with her but I you know spent the couple of weeks ago I spent like over an hour um, talking to one of our newest engineers who lives and works in Lyon and we had a fantastic chat and it was really great just to to get to know People I mean, like I don't work directly with him. We're not on the same team. We're not working on the same part of the the, the product, and so it was really great to to get to know him um, a bit better. And you know, should we start to work together in the future? I think it's the sort of thing that enables you to build those little sort of bridges of trust with people, so that if you are put in a team situation, that the trust and and the sort of early stages of team forming are easier. Yeah, I think this is brilliant, actually. I'm going to try and set this up at work. We're only like 30 people, <laughs> but it's going to get bigger. And we were already starting to not know each other. This, this sort of cutting past the first part of this, the team forming or the there's like this model that uh, forming, storming, norming. Yeah. That, I forget what that's called. But this, that's a really it's a time saver. I imagine a lot of companies of, of a more stodgy type would be like, well, this is a waste of time. You're spending an hour talking to some random person you'll never work with or you're not working with right now. But th- what you said was was right, right on. Like you save time. You got a better relationship built before you even knew you had to have one. I think it's a fantastic idea. Yeah, I really wish that sort of thing had been a thing when I was working in banking um, because mm. I worked for a consultancy. So we went into to to banks as a as a team, and we were sold in as a team. And the thing was, is that yes, we all worked for the same company, but at least in the early stages of working there, um, we were all out on site on teams. And so, if you started a new assignment, you chances were you were thrown on site with people you'd never met before, never spoken to before, and sold in as a team. So you had to do those early forming, storming, norming stages in front of the client mm-hmm. and that can be very messy and unprofessional I can imagine that would be really painful <laughs> and awkward yeah and and that can be really challenging like even if everybody's going in with the best intentions you just don't know people you don't know how they react under pressure being in a bank on a trading floor in a noisy environment in front of clients and people who knee-jerk judge you um, and and that was one of the biggest things about banking culture. I mean, I would go onto a trading floor to talk to, you know, some stakeholders, some users, and they would check out my shoes and my bag first before deciding mm-hmm. whether I was somebody that they would deign to talk to. <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, I like shoes and handbags, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was a thing. I, I had never seen Louboutin shoes in the wild before I started working in banking. <laughs> How could you stand around all day in Louboutin? Come on now. Women were superhuman. They were oh amazing. My gosh, no. <laughs> but no wonder they're always so cranky. <laughs> right? And for clarity, this is like a fancy Tom's. You buy one of these and they give one away. Exactly. So Something like that. Fancy Toms. Exactly. That's what Louboutins are. Do your Toms have red soles, dear? <laughs> um, anyway, let's, let's try and rope this back in towards leadership. We should probably wrap this up pretty soon. I don't know, Kendall. 
I wanted to know how has becoming a leader, and, and I know you're not in a management mm-hmm. position, air quotes, right now, but you are a leader. You are, you are causing your team to gel. You are reaching outside of your boundaries to other people. You are causing things to happen faster and uh, with higher quality and trust. Those are all leadership. And how has become, becoming a leader affected your personal life? How do you use the things or do you use the things that you learned, uh, have learned and are learning in your personal life? I think um, the biggest thing has been kind of creating a culture of feedback in my life and really focusing on that. I, mean, I have a six-year-old son. Um, he's growing up really, really fast. And kids are very, very literal. And we've always taken the view that, you know, you need to explain the situation. So, you know, if he does something rather than just like freaking out and shouting at him or if he does something wrong or says something wrong and like, he'll sometimes come out with things. Um, he kind of was, oh, actually that thing. And it, it just really sounds kind of cringy coming from a small child when talking to an adult. And so helping him understand that you know you didn't really say any bad words and you know I know your intention was good but you know intention isn't magic and the way that that came out if you said that to your teacher would probably be a bit offensive intention isn't magic (laughs) there's a thing we should write down (laughs) (laughs) you know that 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 sort of stuff and you know like even you know down to like you know conversations with my husband you know like it's that whole thing of you know when you did this I felt, you know, mm. <laughs> all of those those great things, and it, it's kind of, you know, even crucial conversations. All of that sort of stuff, like interactions with the school. You know, like I, I don't, I'm one of those mums who's not at the school gate because my kid goes to a childminder, so I don't have the daily relationship with the teachers or the the school leadership. And so, you know, if I need to talk to them about something, it's kind of using all of those skills to go well. You know, I know that you're doing your job to the best of your abilities and you know you're all like super super busy but you know how can we work together and trying to find a way to meet them where they are and learn their communication style and find a way to talk to them so that we can be on the same page. It sounds like a lot of the skills that you learn that you translate into your personal life are basically diplomacy. Uh... (laughs) Yeah I mean Scottish people aren't entirely known for diplomacy (laughs) on the whole. (laughs) <laughs> it's like you developed a superpower <laughs> but, you know, that's awesome it's, it's a <laughs> let's see i have one question and then i think that we should probably wrap it up if money were no object what would you do with your life uh would you dramatically change things if you had all the money that you wanted i don't think so i mean i ha- i live in an area with a great community um, and we've made some incredible friends in the, the four years that I live here and that sense of, of community is invaluable. It's really let us as a family put down roots. Um, but I think what I would probably do is, you know, look at using my skills for greater impact. So perhaps going back into the kind of work where using my design skills to help charitable organisations, to help people communicate better, to help people interact better um, that sort of thing. I'd probably do something different in terms of not earning money, but using doing the same sort of thing. I can't imagine becoming a lady of leisure. I mean, there's a bit of me that wants to, to you know, disappear off and become an artist and, and have the hand to the forehead and, and waft around the place. But I don't think I would get the satisfaction that I really get from solving hard problems. 
Might be fun to try though. Oh, find I'm out. sure for a while, but you know, just for a few years, you know, make sure that it's not a good fit. <laughs> Seriously, you know, and then you can move on to uh, you know creating world peace because communication, and that's what it sounds like you're really into, is making sure that the lines of communication are open and clear, and the structure for that is clear as well. That to me is what leads to peace to people understanding and communicating with each other. Mm. It's a huge part of leadership. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping you do get all the money you need to, you know, become ruler of the world, because I think that would be a great scenario. I'm not sure I could cope with that. You know, you're in charge. You could decide. <laughs> well, before we let you go in, what's, where can people find you on the internet if they want to get in touch, stay in touch? Follow. The best place is probably Twitter, where I am at Pixel Diva, um, cool. and the same on Instagram. If you if you like art and random pictures of my life, those wow. are the two main places. Awesome. Super cute, looking right now. Aww. Yeah. Yay! Thanks for being with us, Anne. This was Authority Issues with Anne Carrier. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. <laughs> <laughs>